It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On today's show, space and why we explore. Is there something itchy inside of us as a species that makes us explore? To travel to areas that sometimes we have no business being in. And yet, there we are. David Aguilar is a naturalist, astronomer, and self-described space junkie. Today, he digs into why human beings explore and why outer space draws the most adventurous explorers. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Kids don't question why they explore. They just do it. When we're young, life is simpler. We don't second-guess going on an adventure. As adults, David Aguilar says, it's a lot more complicated. With a life that is constantly being distracted with the Twittersphere, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn, the the horrors of restless leg syndrome, all of these things that, that we deal with, where children don't. Later in the show, we hear from Professor of Physics and Astronomy, Jana Levin, theoretical physicist and cosmologist, Lawrence Krauss, and Harvard physics professor, Lisa Randall. They speak with Ira Flato, the host of Public Radio International's Science Friday. First, here's David Aguilar speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I must say, what a wonderful pleasure to be here. And I will admit right up front, I am a space junkie. I love outer space. And when we were talking today about why we explore space, I realized that I have had my feet in many different worlds, from aerospace to scientific research to working with kids in science museum, writing children's books for National Geographic. And when I saw this title, I realized that this was absolutely an adult question. Because children never ask this question. And I thought, well, we we now deal in different worlds. We all once were children, and life might have been a little bit simpler for us. But in this world today, we are bombarded with terrorism, with guns, with politics, with the, the threat of climate change, so many things around us that grab our attention. We think about finances, we think about money, we think about what governments can do, where we can go with that money, how is it well best spent. Do we really need to spend it on outer space? And so with questions like this, and with a life that is constantly being distracted with the Twittersphere, Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn, uh, all of the, the crisis that continually confront us, uh, uh, things that we need to deal with, uh, the, the horrors of restless leg syndrome, all of these things that, that we deal with, where children don't. And so when I looked at this topic, at first it seemed very logical to me. And then I realized it was a little bit more. So these are my thoughts, and these are my ideas as to why we explore space. First of all, it's big business. Last year, we spent a total amount, the world, of about $25 billion to research space. NASA, ESA, the Russians, European Space Agency, the Russians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, Canada, 
This is what we spend every year to explore space. This is not chump change. This is a lot of people being employed. So consequently, right up front, space is a business. And this is what keeps some of our economies rolling. Secondly, space is rapidly changing. It is now becoming commercialized. And as space becomes commercialized, a whole new arena of entrepreneurship New jobs, programmers, engineers, marketers, lawyers, because we're even going to have to come back and take a look at treaties as to how they apply to outer space. So it's a burgeoning market that has just taken off. When we take a look at some of the people who are now involved, billionaires who've made their fortunes in other fields who are rapidly investing in outer space, this is where the economy and the economics of tomorrow is coming from. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. We can go down and down the line of all the new space corporations that are being formed to develop space. Space tourism. How many of you have seen the uh, little commercials for riding that slide in L.A.? You're a thousand feet up. You come down on that glass slide one story and people are loving it. Just wait in a few years till you take your family into low Earth orbit, 60 miles above the Earth, and you look out the window. That's going to be an experience. So consequently, this is also money. This is also business. And in fact, the little uh, country of Luxembourg is now looking at leading the world in space mining. Right now, over, there are over 13,000 what we call near-Earth objects. These are asteroids that either cross the Earth's path or are very close to our planet. We want to mine them. They have platinum. They have gold. They have tremendous amounts of very rare elements we find here on Earth. And the little country of Luxembourg, which is known in Europe as the investment center of Europe, is now fully investing in space mining. So now we'll have miners that live on asteroids as they travel through space. That's what's coming. So you see... Why we explore space? It's business. It's big business. And it's just going to grow. But that's not the only reason why we explore space. And this is the one that when I delve deeper into it, really struck home. There is something different about our species. There is something different about us that we apparently do not share with any other creature on this planet. And Stephen Hawking's at the Pluto mission uh, meeting we had last August said it best. He said, we explore because we are human. We want to know. And that defines something in us. When we think about exploring, you've got to think back to our own history. It's an intriguing history. Two million years ago, ancestors that would soon become human beings in the annals of time decided it was a great idea to put the cave up for sale, put the kids on their back, and move, and start spreading out over the world. Now, the interesting aspect of this is they didn't have to do it. They weren't resource-challenged. There was really no reason for them to get up and start dispersing and moving except They had to do it. This is what intrigued me when I took a look at at humans and, and why we reach out as we do. 
17,000 years ago, somebody decided it was a grand idea to come across the frozen Bering Straits into a brand new world. We called them the Clovis First People. And as they got to this new world, the Americas, they must have just been astounded as they stood back, looked at all of this, and they thought, oh my God, think of it. All the shopping malls, all the condos, all of the different shopping areas we can put here. It's wide open to us for development. And now we had migrated to another part of our planet where humans had never set foot before. But it continued. It continued. When Captain Cook did his own Brexit from the British Union, he left three times to sail to the uh, South Pacific. When Roel Amundsen decided that he needed to go to the South Pole, crossing the Ross Ice Shelf, This was something in us that drove him to do it. And even Jacques Cousteau, in 1945, decided it was time to build something that you could carry with you and humans could explore the underwater world. No more were they trapped on the surface looking down at a distant landscape. We suddenly became part of it. And I started asking myself, what is different about humans? Why do we explore? What is it that drives us? I think Herman Melville said it best. In Moby Dick, some of you may remember this famous line, he really defines who we are. He said, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas. Itch is the word we need to focus on here. So is there something itchy inside of us as a species that makes us explore? To travel to areas that sometimes we have no business being in, and yet there we are. And the answer may be as basic as our own genetic makeup. If you look deep inside of us, we have genes. What are genes? Genes are little DNA-encoded capsules that we all carry inside of us. And they dictate our heredity. They dictate who we are. You have blonde hair, you've got two genes for blonde hair. You have brown hair, you have a dominant gene in your body. You have green eyes, you have blue eyes, you have gray eyes. You're left-handed, you're right-handed. All of these are determined by our genes. Even our susceptibility to being ill and to different uh, afflictions of the human body, even mentally, appear now to be connected to our genes, these programs that we carry in our body. And I think one of the most fascinating of all the genes we carry is this one, DRD47R. The first part is its location. 7R dictates what this gene is. Why? Why is this an interesting gene? Because people who contain this gene are different than other people. They love to explore. They love to travel. They love new adventures. They are willing to try new foods, new sexual relationships. They're willing to try drugs. They are willing to change their lives because they have a thirst for new knowledge. These are the people who carry this gene. They are our explorers, and they are most certainly open to change. 
which makes you think that the majority of our Congress today does not carry this gene. (laughs) So how much of us carry it? 20% of the world has this gene inside of it. And I'm laying money down right now. I'll bet almost everybody in this room is carrying that gene in their bodies, or you wouldn't be here. The new knowledge, the new experiences, the new people you're going to meet, the new ideas you're going to embrace, and possibly change old ideas. This is the restless gene that's part of us. Maybe this is why we explore outer space. Makes sense. So it's business and it's money, it's employment, it's that restless gene we carry around inside of us. But then again, the exploration of space is something else. Face it, outer space is not a friendly place for human beings. We don't do well in outer space. We start losing our muscular structure uh, aboard the space station. They're constantly taking a look at this and how do we change this for long-duration flights to Mars and beyond. The human body does not respond well to zero gravity. We even start losing our, our eyesight capability. We start getting tunnel vision as, as we spend more time up in space. We all know if you step outside this uh, spacecraft without a spacesuit, your blood is going to boil away. Space is not a place that is kind to human beings. And face it, for the layperson in this country, outer space doesn't necessarily make them happier, wealthier, doesn't make them prettier or handsomer. It really doesn't change their lives in any appreciable way. And yet we have this odd fascination with astronomy. And the fascination is simply put to you this way. How many of you right now, raise your hand, can name three famous botanists? Go for it. Okay. I'll make it easier. Name three famous chemists. Go. Three famous geologists. Three famous meteorologists. Name three famous astronomers. Here we go. Einstein, Hubble, Sagan, it goes on and on. There's something about astronomy that touches our soul. I think when we think about astronomy, Isaac Asimov said it best. He said, whatever else astronomy may be, who can doubt it's the most beautiful of all the scientists? And this is how children see the universe. And that's why I said in the beginning, it was an adult question. Because for many of us, we've lost that contact. But we get it back when we see these remarkable images from space that tell us it's a wonderful place to conduct business. It's a wonderful place to explore because we just can't help it. But lastly... It is simply stunningly beautiful. It's the wonderment of space that spurs us on. Thank you. David Aguilar is a naturalist and astronomer who consults for the show NASA's Unexplained Files on the Science Channel. 
He also served as Media and Science Education Director at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Next, we hear from a panel of scientists. Lisa Randall is a physicist and wrote the book Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs. Jana Levin's book is Black Hole Blues. She teaches physics and astronomy at Columbia University. Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist who wrote The Physics of Star Trek. Their conversation about dark matter and black holes is led by Ira Flato, the host of PRI's Science Friday. Here's Flato. So we're going to talk about what is the universe made out of and why don't we know what 96% of the universe is made of? And when you think about it, We'll talk about it. When you look around, you see the lights, your family, everything else, everything visible in the universe is only 4% of the universe. And the rest of it is 96% is made out of dark energy, dark matter, dark stuff that we really don't have any idea what it is. Black holes, stuff like that. And that's what we're going to talk about, uh, exploring that stuff now and how we're able to explore what it is and how fascinating it is. Um, let, me, let me just go this way then, Lawrence. What, what is out there in the universe, the dark stuff? Why is that so mysterious and why do we know so little about it? Well, we know so little about it because it's dark. Um, and for the longest time we use telescopes. But, but uh, uh, it's important because it addresses those fundamental questions that, that uh, we all have. Oh, why are we here? How did we get here? The, the reason that, that we exist, this planet exists, is due to certainly to, the, to dark matter, because we've known for a long time that galaxies couldn't have formed if this dark stuff hadn't collapsed first. Uh, but it's, and dark energy is the dominant stuff in the universe that will determine, we think, the ultimate future of the universe. And, and so it's important because ultimately, if we looked at, took everything we can see today, Everything we can see with, with optical telescopes, all the beautiful images that you're shown here, it's all irrelevant. It's a 1% bit of pollution in a sea of dark matter and dark energy, and that determines what, what will ultimately happen to the universe. So to me, what's most important about it is it puts us in perspective as a bit of, a bit of pollution and, and a, bit of, a little bit of a, a sideshow in the universe, and it makes us, in some sense, realize how lucky we are in this sideshow to have come about, as, as, as I'm sure Lisa will, will, will emphasize too, these exotic things ultimately are responsible for this remarkable uh, experience in Aspen we're now having. Lisa, can you want to amplify what he said about these, these little particles and these things and why they're important? Um, you know, it's funny. It's a real question of what we mean by important. I mean, we all exist here every day, and we're in a place where ordinary matter is really dense. We live in the Milky Way disk. I love being in Aspen because it's one of the places where you can actually see the Milky Way. Yeah. So, you know, we're surrounded by this halo of dark matter. It's mostly diffuse. Um, but the Milky Way disk is dense matter. Yet our whole galaxy, the reason the matter was able to organize and be, form stars, and, well, form galaxies, form stars, was because dark matter was there to bring everything in. Without dark matter, at least in the lifetime of our universe, it could have gone on without... But in our universe, in the lifetime of our universe... Dark matter, there's five times as much of it as ordinary matter. So stuff could actually begin to form structure first, because if it was just light, as you know, light doesn't organize. Matter does. And also, oddly enough, the fact that it doesn't interact with light helps, because light would wash out the structure. It would sort of be like 
weight, you know, wind on, on a, if there was structure of sand and a beach, the wind would wash it away, and light would do the same thing. But dark matter doesn't interact with light, at least our light, the light we're familiar with. It's not actually dark, it's transparent. We do see dark things, like Jana's pants. Um, but, but it's transparent, so light just passes through. Billions of dark matter particles are passing through now. But the fact is, it doesn't interact, which means enormous amounts of it can have effects. So is, is it like that. gravity, dark matter? Is it attractive? Well, it, it, it interacts via gravity. And one of the big questions is, does it interact only via gravity? The only way we've seen it so far is through its gravitational interactions. Um, but the real question is going to be, does it have other interactions? And in, in that regard, it's kind of fascinating because most people don't realize that gravity is the weakest force in nature by far weaker than any other force, orders of magnitude weaker. The only reason when you get up in the morning that it seems important is that every atom in the earth is attracting every atom sure. in your in body. And so, so if it just interacts by gravity, everything interacts by gravity, and that's how we've been able to, to, to infer its existence. But it could have very, very weak interactions, far weaker than, than anything that would allow it to be visible and still overwhelm, in some ways, its gravitational interactions, which is why it's an interesting question. But it is, as, as Lisa said, that very important fact that normal matter just couldn't collapse because it interacted too, too much and released light. So Yeah. In fact, it's so weak, it, you know, your kitchen magnet can overcome the force of gravity, a little magnet like that. Richard Feynman gave a great experiment you should all try so there's no tall buildings in Aspen. Just take a friend to the top of a tall building and push them off. <laughs> and, um, and then it takes maybe 100, 200 feet for... Every, all the entire Earth, the gravity of the entire Earth to, to accelerate them down, but electromagnetism does it in a fraction of an inch. They don't even make a dent in the concrete. Let's talk about another great mystery uh, in the universe, and that are black holes, Jenna. Yeah. Well, give us a little thumbnail sketch of what a black hole is and why. Can I just say one thing before? Dark matter and black holes are different. A lot of people actually confuse them. Well, then, the dark yeah. matter, dark energy, and black holes are different. They all have dark or black in them, but they're all different things. There are some people who are promoting this kind of strange oh, absolutely. suggestion that the dark matter could be black holes, right. but they don't need to be black holes. It was one of the first candidates that people thought of as po- in yeah. a long list, and, and sort of most black holes have been removed as candidates, but there's still some small ranges. Yeah. I mean, the only reason why they're coming up in the conversation about dark matter is that they are, in fact, technically dark. They don't emit light or reflect light. And like dark matter, the only effect um, you can really uh, glean from them is, is indirectly through the gravitational uh, effect that they have um, on the space and time around them. But people, I think, often think that a black hole is a collapse or a dense crush of matter. And that's actually not what a black hole is. In fact, a black hole is nothing. A black hole is an empty region of space-time. The only way that we are sure black holes form has to do with taking matter and crushing it densely, like the collapse of a very heavy star. But once the star collapses and space-time becomes so strongly curved around it that not even light can escape, it like inscribes a shadow on space-time behind it, this material, and then it keeps falling. So the shadow, what we think of as the black hole, this region beyond which not even light can escape, is actually empty. And, and the so what happens to all the stuff it. that goes into well, that it? That we don't know. We know it has to continue to fall. And then there's a lot of you know, arguments that maybe it leaves behind a remarkably small quantum remnant, but that's very unpopular for many reasons. Maybe it blows out into a different Big Bang, it, 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 also unpopular for many reasons. It's also um, worth you know, mentioning that black holes are, they're still inferred. We still don't, we're still, from 
we still aren't certain that black holes exist. Everything, they're things that walk like a duck and quack like a duck, and we think they're ducks, but, but we see things that so far we can only explain as if they're black holes, but we haven't, we don't have any in the lab that we can... Well, so I think the more fair way of saying it is that we don't really know what black holes yeah, are. Yeah. I mean, it's not... I wouldn't exactly say they're empty. We know that somehow, if quantum mechanics is right, that the information that went in should somehow be there. But we don't know what it is. I mean, the space-time metric changes as you go inside. The form of matter changes as you go inside. So there's a lot of open questions. So whatever it is that's there, we're going to call a black but hole. But it's even more open than that. I mean, well, I we don't even know that black holes exist. So people like me have written papers saying maybe they don't even form. Well, look, I think if yeah. we say something like we look at stars orbiting the center of our galaxy and we yeah. see that they're orbiting an empty region of space that's millions of times the mass of the sun, but fits in about three yeah. sun widths. And most people are pretty happy to call that a black hole. Now, technically, what I consider to be a black hole really is the existence of the event horizon. Yeah. And that is empty. That's inarguably, I think, empty. I mean, unless we're going to talk the about... The event horizon is, is the edge right. of the black the hole. The center might not form. be empty, but the event horizon better be if, what, if we know anything about what we're talking Although about. people know... I mean, there is a lot of debate about it's, that. Right, but at the quantum level. at the surface of the black yeah. hole. All of you think that scientists gonna, agree gonna, about everything. I want this to be... I want this to be a lesson. No, but the point is, is let's say we understand something better about quantum gravity. We Side that there's a smear of strings that are uh, in some kind of holographic way smeared out around the horizon, and it's not truly empty, etc. It won't change the fact that there's this object that's millions of times the mass of the, fun, the sun and fits. Well, agree, there's an object there, but it, but it's <laughs> but, but the objects. But then we had this. If they were, they didn't exist, how did we get this new gravitational wave? The black holes were circling they're, they're each other. Objects, and they act like black holes, and they could easily what, be black holes. Whatever it is, it's walking like yeah. a black It's quacking. It, exactly. What's the expression? It's quacking like a black hole. It's walking but, like a black know, hole. We're pointing out that this is the limit of science, and it's really, we're all yeah. theorists. And, yeah. and, and we need observations and express. Science is an empirical. It's empirical. And where we're at the limit of our empirical knowledge is where you see people like us arguing the most. And, and that's really important, that we, we can't come up. It's not just theory. We and need observations. I want to say something else that's important, yeah. which is that a lot of fundamental science these days is stuff we sort of infer indirectly. I mean, the existence of dark matter, I mean, but, that it, but in some sense, at a very deep level, everything is inferred indirectly. I mean, we can say we see things with our eyes, but everyone knows our eyes are unreliable. A lot of processing goes on. So basically, when we say we observe anything, it's an interpretation in terms of fundamental theory. And it's, and it's not even necessarily a fundamental theory. It's an effective theory. And yeah. the fundamental theory can change what the, what's really going on inside. I mean, when we say we see a, a podium here or a table, what do we call this thing? I don't know. Um, we see it. But we know deep down it's made up of atoms and molecules, and most of that's empty space. Do I say that's empty space? No, I'm still going to call it a table. So from the point of view of an effective theory, we have seen black holes. From the point of view of an effective theory, we have seen dark matter. Yeah. And that's a really important, especially for someone who cares about science and religion so much, it's really an important distinction to make, that we infer things, a lot of things indirectly. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, a panel of physicists debate black holes and discuss outer space. Lisa Randall is a physics professor at Harvard. Jana Levin teaches physics and astronomy at Barnard College. Lawrence Krauss directs the Origins Project and teaches at Arizona State University. Ira Flato is moderating the conversation. He's the host of PRI's Science Friday.
Now, back to the discussion. I think another important takeaway is the reason why we're splitting hairs on these issues of whether it's truly empty space or not empty yeah. space is because it's important to us scientifically now. These are really important questions, and the black hole is the terrain on which we're working out some of the most difficult and subtle aspects of absolutely forefront theory. So mm-hmm. we're all open. I mean, if tomorrow somebody proved to me that that thing at the center of our galaxy was not actually what we conventionally mean by a black hole, I'd be thrilled. I wouldn't yeah. be disappointed. I'd be thrilled because we'd be making progress on the You'd most difficult front. Front. No, I think the book would still, you know, it's and, like... <laughs> and, and to get to your question, that's the connection. Black holes, dark matter, dark energy, they all connect the largest things we can see with the fundamental stuff that makes the universe up. There's this beautiful connection. And so they are wonderful laboratories, which is why, I mean, I was trained as a particle physicist, why 30 years ago I started getting involved, because we're limited with terrestrial, I mean, we have the Large Hadron Collider, which is a wonderful machine and an important machine, but, but to explore, the universe was a huge particle physics experiment that was done at least once, and, uh, and it's data analysis now, and it provides us an opportunity to a new observational handle to learn about the kind of questions that we care about. Let's talk about the gravitational waves then, because this was a, the, the second one was detected just what, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks it was, ago. It was announced. It was announced. It was announced. They did it. Yeah, you were there when they detected the first one, were you? Not? I, I wasn't technically, well, I was sort of there. So I, I, um, I was working very closely with the team and two of the original architects, Kip Thorne and Ray Weiss. Um, on the day of detection, I happened to print a draft of the book for them to um, peruse, and they didn't tell me about the detection. I, tech, I am not signed uh, an MOU to, to be, I'm not a, an experimentalist, but they did tell me um, very early on, and they were accusing me of leaking it to you, Lawrence, <laughs> which I oh, did I can, not I'm do. happy to say you were not my source. This was last Thank fall, you. right? My source. For publicly I leaked it to the public because I think it's appropriate. But, yeah. um, but yes, they did tell me very early about the detection. Hey, they told you not to write your last chapter, right? They gave, yeah. They they there was something as, that you're going to be missing if yeah. you don't hang around. Yeah, they didn't want me to go to press without the discovery as the last chapter. Oh, so what are, I mean, if we look at space, what are, what is gravitation, what are gravitational waves? What is happening, Lawrence, to the space there? Is, is, is space analogous? Is space gravity? Well, is gra- what I we mean, call space really gravity? Up? General relativity has told us there's an intimate connection between what we think of as space and time and matter and energy, that the two are intimately related, that matter and energy affect the properties of space, and the properties of space and time affect the evolution of matter and energy. That's that nonlinear interaction that makes general relativity much more complicated than Newtonian gravity. So, so there is no distinction. between You can't describe space unless you describe, in some sense, the energy that determines the properties of space. And so when I wave my hands, as I do a lot, I'm creating a gravitational wave because I'm, I'm, we're all distorting space around us. And, and you can show, as Einstein first showed and then didn't believe and then believed, um, that you know, when you have a moving disturbance like this, it creates a ripple in space, just as, although it's not the perfect analogy, just as throwing a rock and a nice, calm uh, surface of a pond causes a ripple that, it, that goes up. So a gravitational wave is a, is a wave in space, so the space itself oscillates. I mean, you there, should have answered that one. Well, I'm, I'm going to try something that I don't usually try, but since you guys are holding up yeah. <laughs> the physics end. Yeah. So 
we know that there are these very subtle abstract things called electric fields and magnetic fields, and we can't see them, um, uh, we think, right? You're, but your phone's going to ring in response. Some of you are tweeting, doing whatever, and they're using the fact that those fields are permeating space. If you shake them, they create waves in the electromagnetic fields, and that's what light is, right? Light is a wave in the electromagnetic field. The analogy here is there is a gravitational field. We cannot see it with our eyes, but we experience it all the time. And if you shake it, like I, I liken the black holes that were detected to like mallets on a drum, and they're shaking space-time just like mallets ring a drum. If you shake it, you create gravitational waves, which is really very deeply an analog to light, but it is not light. No telescope can take a, a collect gravitational waves or take a picture of the gravitational waves. So we really needed to build this basically recording device. I was um, going to add one thing to that, which yeah. uh, I think is a good description, which is that although it seems, in, in principle, it seems actually difficult to wrap your head around, it's actually more difficult to wrap your head around a world in which these waves didn't exist in the sense that if I, if I move something now over here, why, you know, we used, you know, in high school, you learn what the electromagnetic field is, but how did it get from that source to where you are? Does it do that right away? That would be kind of magic. The idea is that a field is what carries that information. So these black holes collapsed you know, a billion years ago, but that information has to travel to us. And so there has to be some rippling of the stuff that's in between, and all that's in between is space. In fact, so it makes sense that there should be... So there's, like we used to think, oh, there was the idea that there was an ether back 100 years ago, so we don't need the ether because we have space itself acting as the medium to carry these things. You can, yeah, no, it's like yeah. you can ether. But it was the, re- the question that Lisa just talked about. It was a really fundamental one. It was the one Newton asked when he said, hypothesis non fingo. He said, I don't know how the Earth knows the sun is there, but I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, he knew he didn't know what gravity was. Yeah, and it was only then, it, in fact, in some sense, it was the example of electromagnetism. Right. And the fact that Faraday said, hey, maybe... Maybe the reason one charge knows another charge is there is that there's a field around it, and that that discharge fields the field. That changed everything. Eventually, came back to, to allowing us through Einstein to understand gravity. So it was really that. That's and if it makes reverse. you feel any better. Faraday was someone who wasn't actually trained in mathematics. It's he didn't. Amazing he story. didn't. Only wrote one equation. He said he in his whole life. Figured it all out, and then Maxwell put it all into equations afterward. But yeah. he just basically was really lucky because yeah. he like worked. So, so what can this all this uh, discussion about the discoveries of dark energy, or minor black holes? What can this inform us about how the universe began? Does it tell us anything about how the universe began? Well, I just, this isn't exactly your question, but I just want to say when people talk about the discovery of gravitational waves, I want to emphasize it's not just another astrophysical phenomenon that was discovered. It is absolutely fundamental to the way we think uh, of the, the law of nature works, that the gravitational wave, as Lisa was explaining, is the thing that carries information of the force to us. And, and so it's deeply, deeply embedded in how fundamental law works. In fact, gravitational wave astronomy will be the astronomy of the 21st century in many ways, but in particular, it may be it, taking on this theme that, it's in, that we only learn about the world by observing it, that learning about, you know, we can talk a lot about how the universe began, and all of this informs us about the physics that's relevant, but what's interesting is when we look out with light, again, to follow up on what Lisa was saying in some sense, we can only see back, a, only see back to the point at which the universe was, became transparent when it was 300,000 years old. Before that, it was opaque. If we want to look back to earlier times, we have to look at something that interacts more weakly than light. What interacts more weakly than light? Gravity. Gravitational waves from essentially almost the Big Bang could make it here, and 
two years ago we thought we detected them, and maybe we will in the next year or two. They could give us direct information about what the universe was like a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. So they will provide us the empirical data that allow theorists like us to, to, to continue our speculations and but maybe... Back to your question of how things started. I mean, I hate to tell you, but we don't know how things started. And there's a good reasons we don't know how they started. First of all, things interacted too strongly for us to work it out. Second, we can't see back that far. But we do have an amazingly accurate story, we believe, of how things went pretty soon after the Big Bang. We know that dark matter played a big role, but we know in the beginning radiation played a role. Then we know dark matter right. took over, and at that point structure could begin to form, and then galaxies began to form. And there's a detailed formulation of that. And you know, We're working out more about that, and that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. the measurements today are so exciting. But we do have a pretty good picture, but from relatively later on, like fractions of a second after the Big Bang. But technically, the Big Bang might have made a bang. I mean, in the sense that these gravitational <laughs> waves are pretty yeah. close to an experience of sound, it was a pretty, like, we can model what that sound in the gravitational waves would have been, and it's pure white noise. It's just, it's a very just chaotic... Wait, let me, let me just say, we, we, have a, quiet by now. we have a question. We've got about five minutes for some questions. If anybody has a question for... Uh, stand up now while somebody will get a microphone to you. While, while they get the microphone, I yeah. just want to say that, in fact, that's what makes it exciting about learning back. The Large Hadron Collider takes us back to the universe, to conditions of the universe when it was about a millionth of a millionth of a second old. So that's how far back we can go with, with direct detectors on Earth in some sense. And, and going back further, is these other observations will allow us to take it back further. Mm -hmm. are, are, um, is there any new physics? Does the physics we have Everything we know, the formulations, is that adequate for no. us? To, That's it, what makes it so exciting. That's why we're interested. So we have jobs. Actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we don't know what dark matter is. I'm we can take a different point of view. Okay. We don't know that, and and basically what we as physicists try to do is we try. I mean, you know, we're, we see we try to come up with new theories, but really what we try to do is we work as hard as we can to see whether we can explain phenomena through existing theories. Yeah. And only then. Do we think we really have something new? Are there, are there missing really particles out there that we don't know about that comprise dark missing. energy? missing. We don't know about them. We don't dark even know if they are. We don't know what we don't know. Dark matter is unknown. I mean, that's all. That's what makes that symbiosis so interesting, because there are dark matter detectors being built underground to detect this stuff, because if it's some new type of energy particle, they'll go right through your body and my body and, and deep into the earth and, and, and look for it. But the Large Hadron Collider is also looking for it. We don't know... Who's, which experiment is going to find it first? And as far as dark energy is concerned, all bets are off. I mean, the only, no one understands dark energy, and, and it's going to be a lot harder to understand dark energy than dark but energy. But that so that makes up most of the universe, though. Yes, there probably are. is lots of stuff we haven't seen because we've only yeah. probed so much. But no, we don't know that until we actually have evidence But we it. do know that dark matter is something we don't know what it is. I mean, right, that, but we don't know fact. for sure, as we said earlier, yeah. we don't know for sure that it's a new type of particle. If it is black hole, well, it's... Well, it could be... What, 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 okay, what, so what if it... was important because it wasn't facetious. We spent a long time trying to see if dark matter was something we knew. Well, I work at dark like, matter yeah. Yeah. Well, like, like neutrinos, you know, there are... Yeah. There are dark ma we know of dark matter particles. We know that there are things called, for example, neutrinos, which do not interact with light, which yeah. interact weakly in the way Lawrence is describing. But we can also prove that the ones that we know can't, can't be responsible exactly. for the dark We spent a long time, 50 yeah. years, trying it to disprove that. So, so when we run out of the possibilities, of, we eliminate, mm -hmm. it's like, well, it's going to be worse than what uh, Sherlock Holmes says. When you eliminate all the things that are obvious, 
whatever is left is, is actually there, but when we eliminate those things, we have nothing left well, no, to go we to. We know that, yeah, no, what's really left. exciting <laughs> is we know that the only things that are left are particles that are different than the particles that make you and I up. And that means there's more stuff in the universe than the stuff that makes you and I up. So it's incredibly exciting that we've eliminated all the stuff we so, know. So the hunt is actually more ex exciting than the find. Oh, often people were often disappointed that the Higgs was discovered. I mean, weirdly, everyone was thrilled because the Higgs was this piece of the puzzle. But there was also a sort of like, huh, is that it? There was a kind of like, yeah, we did it. And then there was a, is that it? Like, no, you know, actually, we want to, to discover new stuff. Like conversation. It's really funny because on the one hand, we really want to think people are special. But on the other hand, this all acknowledges that there's so much stuff out there that we don't know. So we're special to us, but we don't know. That do, we, do we need new tools? If I get, I'm going to give you a blank check question, my last question. I give on Science Friday to the scientists. If you had a blank check, you wanted to design something that could find out these things, what, do you even know what tool you need? What we build with what we can do. I mean, the gravitation that LIGO was a great example of a tool that didn't even exist when people were trying to figure out how to build it. And, and we use the existing technologies, and we push them to their limits. The LIC is the most common. energy collider will find yeah. something. Yeah, I mean, we'll need, and, and it's a... We'll, we know what we need to do to be able to explore regimes where we haven't seen. We don't know what we're going to find, and when we find something, that'll tell us what to do next. So. All right. We, I guess we have nothing to talk about anymore. <laughs> thank is, you. We've run out of time. Nothing is very exciting. I want you nothing to is uh, something from nothing, yeah. right? Um, thank you. Thank you, uh, Lisa Randall, Dan Eleven, Lawrence Krauss. <laughs>